Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. The Devil Fears Prayer Just imagine this scene. The devil sits in the back of the room during a strategy session. A dozen demons have gathered to hear a report on the life of an especially committed saint. He won't stumble, groused the imp, responsible for his demise. No matter what I do, he won't turn his back on God. The council began to offer suggestions. Take his purity away, said one. Oh, I tried, replied the fiend, but he's too moral. Well, take his health, urged another. I did but he refused to grumble or complain. Oh, I'll take his belongings. Are you kidding? I've stripped the man of every single penny and possession, yet he still rejoices. For a few moments, no one spoke, and finally from the back of the room came the low-measured voice of Satan himself. The entire council turned as the fallen angel rose to his feet. His pale face was all but hidden by the hood. A long cape covered his body. He raised his bony hand and made his point. You must take what matters most. What is that? asked the subordinate. You must take his prayer. Ah, don't allow Satan to take your prayer. Now in the Archbishop's Corner is where Archbishop Leonard Blair offers us the keys to a better prayer life. How to get closer to God stronger against evil, and healthier in life through prayer. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for taking some time to spend with us in the Archbishop's Corner, where prayer becomes the goal for every Christian life. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So tell me, speaking about prayer, what are you praying for these days? Any specific prayer intentions? Well, I suppose, uh, as Archbishop, I'm always praying for the... um for the Archdiocese, for the people entrusted to my pastoral care as Archbishop. And uh, I pray always for uh, more ordinations to the priesthood, vocations to the religious life. I pray for uh, those who are in any kind of difficulty or trouble in, in the Archdiocese. I pray for God's blessing on our our pastoral planning. Uh, I pray this time of year that we'll be successful in our uh, AAA effort uh, which is so important to funding a lot of the things that the Archdiocese does, both within and without. Uh, so those are the things I uh, pray for the Church. You know, these are very troubled times for the Church, uh, mm. challenging times, where there are all kinds of things going on uh, in different places that uh, are, are deeply troubling. Any- and, of course, I've been praying for peace with Ukraine as well. Okay. Anything specifically happening with the AAA? I know that we begin a, a new kickoff year, the weekend of the 26th and the 27th of the month. Well, we've had two uh, events. Uh, one was something we'd done in the past, but it's attracted even more people to have a wine and beer tasting at the uh, Aquaturf, which tends to attract a younger crowd, which is, of course, extremely important for us, too, uh, to engage our younger Catholics and then we had, uh, you know, this is all coming out of COVID now, where things, uh, thank God, are getting better. We had another big dinner at the Aquaturf that 860 people wanted to come to. So we had that dinner uh, on, on a Sunday afternoon. 
and uh, it was really good to be together again. I think the people were really happy that, you know, with following the precautions and everything, that, that we hadn't done that for a long time. And now I'm starting, rather than multiplying the number of dinners, I am uh, going to individual parishes in the evening to celebrate a Mass uh, for, the, for the people and to have kind of a reception afterward and a little presentation on the AAA. So this coming week, I know I'm going to at least two parishes in the evening for that purpose. We're praying for success because we rely on the generosity of our Catholic people to support uh, the many works of our archdiocese. Sounds good and uplifting, and uh, that could be uh, an important prayer intention for all of us to pray for the success of the Archbishop's Annual Appeal. Archbishop, today is the United Nations World Day of Social Justice, an annual observation to encourage people to look at how social justice affects poverty eradication. It also focuses on the goal of achieving full employment and support for social integration. Now, social justice is a commonly used word today with a variety of meanings. How would you describe social justice from the Christian perspective? Well, I think, you know, as the Old Testament itself is distinguished from ancient other ancient religions by being ethical monotheism, the worship of one God uh, and ethical in the sense that one had belief had implications for the way one lived one's life. And so, you know, the, the, the New Testament as well, the scriptures, Christ's teaching clearly uh, teaches that at the very least we have to be just toward our neighbor uh, and, and live, try to work for a just society. But even more importantly, above and beyond the demands of justice, we have to love our neighbor as ourselves. All of that message is very important, but I do give this little caution, you know, that the Second Vatican Council said that our focus on the kingdom of heaven does not blind us to working for the good uh, of a life on earth. Mm-hmm. But the caution I have sometimes is that uh, in the last 50, 60 years, the reverse has happened, that sometimes people can be very preoccupied by social justice on the earth, but they don't give any attention to, to the things of God, uh, you know, that they don't, they're no longer interested in heaven. And so, obviously, the truth embraces both. I mean, Catholicism is not a religion of either or. Catholicism is a religion of both and. So it's justice and truth, truth and justice. It's, uh, yes, it's it's working for a, a, a more just and peaceful society on earth. But it is also the greatest good we can do to for another person is to lead that person to faith in Jesus Christ, to the practice of the sacraments and eternal life. One affects the other, does it not? Yes, one, one, both, they inform one another. They're, they're both very important. You know, and I would say perhaps that, you know, to a person who is uh, very secular in, in, in working for justice and peace, to quote a phrase from the New Testament, you are not far from the kingdom of God, but, you know, we have come to invite you to make the most important leap of all, which is the leap of, of faith in, in Christ and practice of, of uh, Catholic faith. Well, just to make mention of the fact that tomorrow is also a day to honor all former presidents in the United States. President's Day falls on the third Monday of February each year, traditionally viewed as a time of patriotic celebration. However, the holiday has become all about presidents, not just George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, but all presidents. Any comment, Archbishop? Well, we should always have respect for uh, the leaders in society. I mean, uh, you know, even uh, Peter and Paul in their epistles talked about praying for the emperor. 
uh, and respect for civil authority. Uh, today, of course, in the United States for a very long time, that was taken for granted and was part and parcel of our civic sensibilities. But today, things have become so contentious and are becoming so ideological that it's creating great rifts. And, and I think it is important on this day or any other day of our nation's national identity to come together in a respectful way uh, to, to honor the office, no matter who that may have been over the last uh, couple hundred years. And speaking of office, Tuesday of this coming week is the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter the Apostle. This feast commemorates Christ choosing Peter to sit in his place as the servant authority of the whole church. What's the significance, the spiritual significance of this feast, Archbishop? Well, the chair of Peter, you know, again, uh, the, the word cathedral comes from cathedra in Greek, which means the, the chair. It, it, it's the seat. We talk about the counties. Well, in Connecticut, counties don't, don't count for much. Uh, but the county seat or the seat of the local government well, in the church, the seat of the bishop is the cathedral, the cathedra. And uh, similarly, the, the pope having the, the chair of St. Peter, of the bishop of Rome, uh, that this, this is a symbol of this uh, teaching authority, of this presiding uh, in charity. And um, so, it, yeah, it's, it's a way to, to commemorate an important aspect of the Petrine ministry in the church. If you're like me, you rely on your calendar to keep you on schedule. Did you know that we have Pope Gregory XIII to thank for that? On February 24th, back in 1582, Pope Gregory XIII enlisted the expertise of astronomers and mathematicians to correct the Julian calendar, which was then 10 days in error. The correction was a minor one, changing the rule about leap year. The new calendar, named for him the Gregorian calendar, is the most widely used calendar in the world today. Archbishop, do you think most people realize that the calendar that we use to date time today was a product of a pope? Well, I don't know if they—no, I, I suppose they don't appreciate or know that fact. But, uh, you know, I remember reading um, an excellent book uh, by a British scholar, uh, uh, a lady who wrote about the church and, and science and— you know, uh, this myth that somehow the church and religion are opposed to science is absolutely false. Right. Uh, the church always took a great interest in scientific things, particularly with regard to the calendar, because it has something to do, of course, with the observance of Easter and feasts and such. But you're quite right. Um, the calendar was off, and uh, the Pope assembled these uh, these scientists. And uh, they—in fact, I, I don't know if I mentioned this on a program before, but I— when I was Cardinal Schalke's secretary in Rome, uh, we went up to the—we were invited to go up to this tower. People don't know that it's there, but it's in the Belvedere Courtyard of the Vatican Museum. Mm. We actually had to crawl on a ladder outside to get to this room, which is a beautiful room, uh, frescoed, and there are metal plates in the floor, and there are holes in the in the wall— that, that this is where the scientists worked. What year did you say it was? Fifteen. This was back in 1582. 1582, and they calculated the angle of the sun. And I, I mean, I'm no scientist. I don't know how they did this, but they took these measurements or readings, and that's how they they corrected the calendar. The work was done in that in that room, uh, using those kinds of instruments at that time, and the result was a corrected uh, calendar which the most of the world accepted. Interestingly, Russia, Orthodox Russia, refused to accept this change, which meant that the calendar on a particular day uh, leapt forward by I don't know how many days uh, to, to change the day of the month. 
But it wasn't until the Russian Revolution uh, in after 1917 that Russia started to use the calendar that we all use that comes from the Pope. It's a very interesting story mm. by any telling. That's right, this month of February, I guess, is when the, when the change took place. Interesting. Well, it's interesting, too, that one of the saints, I forget which one, it said he or she died the night of, and then they said, like, I'm just making this up because I don't remember the date, but like the night of February 17th, February 20th. In other words, <laughs> the next day suddenly was was adjusted. Your preference for keeping your calendar schedule, paper or digital? No, I have my uh, my phone that keeps, uh, I, I pretty much keep it on, on, on that. But I at the end of every year, I do print my calendar out for the record because I, I think... You know, our reliance on digital or electronic things is a little bit precarious. There also has to be, I think, for important things or for record or history, there has to be, uh, I, I trust something a little more solid. I'm with you. Saturday is National Carpe Diem Day, newly established back in 2020. Many people get caught up in making plans for tomorrow or living for the future, but the only moment that we actually are guaranteed is life right now. This moment right now is all that we really have, and the phrase carpe diem, seize the day, is an important reminder of this. Do you think that's a good motto to live by, seize the day? Well, I forget the origin of that uh, that phrase. I, it might, I think it comes from antiquity, perhaps even a pagan situation, but that's not to say that it's bad. It's certainly true that we, even Jesus said, sufficient to the day are the troubles thereof. Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow. Hmm. That's straight from the Savior's lips. So we don't have to look to ancient uh, philosophers. We can look to Christ himself, who says that we should uh, be attentive to, to each day and be focused on that. Well, let's take a look now at our Gospel reading on this Sunday when we celebrate the seventh Sunday of Ordinary Time, the 20th day of February. Today's reading is from Luke's Gospel, the sixth chapter, and after the Gospel is presented in dramatic fashion, then we'll talk with you, Archbishop, and uh, ask for your thoughts. But I say to you that here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To him who strikes you on the cheek, Offer the other also. And for him who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And of him who takes away your goods, do not ask them again. And as you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. 
Archbishop, what's the message of this gospel? Well, this is the great um, call to conversion, uh, you know, uh, that is radical, the radical demands of the gospel. And I think I can't emphasize that enough, that Jesus does call us to a radical way of life. And I think all of us are striving every day to put it into practice. I think the one thing that's very frustrating to me as a pastor of the church is when somebody doesn't, they argue that that, that, that this has no meaning for them. You know, when Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who mistreat you, turn the other cheek, and then you find somebody who claims to be a, a Catholic, a believer, but they're filled with uh, anger and hatred over some wrong that's done to them, and they absolutely refuse to forgive or they refuse to, uh, you know, to, to try to make amends. Again, we're all, I'm not singling out anybody in particular. We all have our struggles and our failings to do what our Lord said. But this is not, you know, just some kind of suggestion. Jesus if, says, if you want to be my disciple, this is what you have to strive for. And it's very radical. It's really saying that don't worry about this, what happens to you in this world at all, that God will be your vindicator and God will be your reward. Uh, you know, Jesus says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. We're always struggling to do this. I mean, Lent will be coming up within a reasonably near future. Mm-hmm. And I think every Lent we have to, to examine our conscience about how much we're really living, the radical demands of the gospel. The gospel is not just about some kind of syrupy, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, syrupy kind of uh, lovey-dovey stuff. That, that uh, <laughs> Not that that's necessarily bad. I mean, we are people of emotion and, and affection. But it means really being... Um, being willing to change and to, and to put our trust in, in God and, and do what Jesus says. Well, he sets the moral bar pretty high. I mean, love your enemies, do good to them, lend expecting nothing back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. Be merciful, stop judging, stop condemning, forgive, give. Is this the ideal to strive for or, or is it a reachable goal expected of every single one of us? Not just the ideal, but a reachable goal. Well, I think... Uh, you know, certainly to the extent that we are all called to be saints, it is always reachable with God's grace. I mean, we strive and struggle and we fail and we, 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 we uh, uh, have to go to confession. We have to, we have to get, when, G, when we fall, we have to get up. And, st- and So we're always striving to fulfill this. Uh, saints, canonized saints, are simply people who, to a heroic degree, were able to put into practice what Jesus commanded of all of us. But we have the sacrament of penance when we do fail, but it's not some abstract thing. We have to always be striving for this. Well, the clincher comes when he says, for the measure with which you measure will in return be measured out to you. So if I'm a racist, a bigot, a condemning person, it'll all come back and hit me squarely in the face. Talk about that. Well, I think Jesus speaks for himself. For the measure with which you measure will in return be measured out to you. Stop condemning and you will not be condemned. For you, forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and gifts will be given to you. Well, the other implication is that if you don't do these things, you're going to wind up being very shocked uh, when you face the judgment seat of Christ. Let's take a look now at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners. For instance, Linda from Seymour says, I was taught that St. Peter is at the gates of heaven and you have to pass him to get in. What is the biblical basis for seeing St. Peter at the gates of heaven? Well, and it's the, it's the power of the keys. Uh, Jesus says, uh, you are Peter upon this rock, I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell will not be prevail will prevail against it. And uh, this this is the the idea of of uh, Peter being the um, the gatekeeper, if you will. But it is a poetic image, you know. It's not literally that there's a key to heaven, but it's saying that Peter has a very uh, important uh, role as head of the College of the Apostles and uh, with the apostolic faith and the preaching of the gospel. Let's take- I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You know, this is something that comes from our Lord's own, own mouth. And it has a, a scriptural a resonance from the Old Testament. Uh, uh, one of the scenes there, something that was said by one of the prophets, uh, but it's not uh, literally a, a metal key, but it is a sign of authority, a sign of a certain vigilance, um, a teaching authority, and such. Let's look at Claire's question. Claire is from South Windsor. Claire says, I have been a registered nurse for over 40 years and received the COVID-19 vaccine in January 2021. After being vaccinated, I found out that the vaccine either contained fetal cells or experimented on fetal cells to develop. I was shocked that the Catholic Church was not outspoken against this. It also upsets me that the Church is not standing up for those who have a moral issue in receiving the vaccine. It has caused spiritual distress for many, first to receive the vaccine, and also to know that the most pro-life religion will not back them up. If the Church will not stand up to this, I fear religious freedom will disintegrate. I know you have addressed this before on the Archbishop's Corner, but I still cannot wrap my head around it. I refuse to get a booster and fear I may lose my job. I am asking for your help to speak out for those who are like me. Well, I understand uh, your... Uh, what, what is the lady's name again? This is Claire from South Claire. Windsor. Claire, I, I respect your conscience in these matters, but... You, you have to understand that, you know, the Church makes uh, a determination on the basis of faith and reason. And, you know, as you pointed out in your question, we have addressed this over and over again. And I, I don't know what more you can say about it. Even the Pope uh, has addressed this. Not only, but even before, even before the current, uh, uh, because, you know, using fetal tissue lines for vaccines is not anything new. It, it's not just about COVID. It goes back to other things as well. And I, and it goes back to other popes as well. Uh, and, you know, there is such a thing as, as something being so remotely connected that it, it, it morally does not rise to the level of being objectionable. And, uh, you know, I'm, not a moral theologian or scientist uh, to be able to explain in greater detail why this is, how, how this reasoning proceeds. But I certainly have trust in the Church. I have trust in what Pope Francis and popes before him have, have said. I trust in the judgment of the uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and the moral theologians. They, they have not, you know, they're not exactly slouches. The Catholic Church is not exactly a slouch when it comes to pro-life. And to say that, that somehow uh, they're all wrong and somebody's right about objecting, well, you can object to that, uh, you know, in conscience, but I don't think it's fair to indict the church uh, when it comes to these things. I've been reflecting on this. You know, a lot of things are morally um, compromised or tainted in some way. Uh, you know, I think, uh, for example, We've often heard about the uh, exploitation of workers in third world countries making all kinds of goods for the United States. You know, I, I go buy a shirt and it's made in, in, in Asia someplace. And, uh, 
you know, for, for all I know, there, there could very well be a, a moral question here about the kind of, of pay that these people receive and the care. We have to be vigilant about those things. We have to work for justice. Yes, we have to work for an end to abortion, which the Catholic Church strives for mightily. And I have in my own life and ministry as a bishop mightily. But, you know, if, if you get to the point on, on these scientific and moral questions that you no longer accept uh, the judgment of the Church, well, that creates a problem for your faith. I will say that the, the Church respects your judgment if you don't want to receive this. But I don't think it's right for you for a person to say I'm right and the church is wrong because I've decided that this immorally uh, is objectionable. You know, it's a matter. We just talked a moment ago about the Saint Peter and the keys. You know, <laughs> and and yet today um, we we find that teaching authority is said to be faulty or wrong just because a person comes to a different conclusion. And I don't think we can we, we ought to do that. Let's look at a question from Kevin from Barkhamsted. Kevin says, what is the difference between a transitional deacon and a permanent deacon? Well, I think the words express it. A transitional means the person's going on to be, a, be ordained a priest later, and a permanent one, they remain deacons. And Todd from Marlboro has a question. I am wondering if the Catholic Church rules have changed regarding the preaching of homilies during the Holy Mass. It used to be, without exceptions, that the priest preached from the pulpit. I travel often and have been to churches in various places and have noticed that some of the priests walk around in the front of the congregation or in the middle aisle while preaching. What is happening here? Is this the new normal? Well, Ted, I wouldn't say it's the new normal, but uh, strictly speaking, you're not obliged to uh, remain in the pulpit uh, for a homily during Mass. When I was a pastor, I... Uh, always spoke from the uh, from the pulpit to Ambo, but uh, unless I had mass for the kids in grade school, when we had the little ones in church during the week, I would go down to the aisle because I would sometimes ask questions of the of the children. So I wouldn't say that leaving the pulpit is a new normal, but it is not it is not uh, prohibited. Personally, I find that people who walk around giving a homily, other than for kids, little kids, I find that distracting myself, but uh, as if I'm part of the congregation, but that's just my uh, thought. Robin from New Haven says, A new Gallup survey found that 67% of Americans who attend religious services weekly said they are very satisfied with the way things are going in their personal life. The correlation between religiosity and well-being is supported by other research. Some researchers point to the calming, positive influence of belief in a higher power that comes with religion. Others note the positive impact of being part of a close-knit religious community that fosters friendships with other religious people. Do you think people may be drawn back to church after learning of the many benefits? Well, Robin, thank you for pointing out this positive uh, information. I think that I've often quoted Pope Benedict about this before. You know, he said that, People think that, accuse the Catholic Church of saying, you can't do this and you can't do that, and this is wrong and that's wrong. He said, but the reality is that when you live by the teachings uh, that we have from Jesus and our faith about life, you actually find happiness not just in heaven, but you find happiness in this world too. And I think that's an absolute truth that, that you know, if you live by uh, what our Lord taught us, 
and that includes particularly being united in 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 the the body of Christ which is the church which means you go to church on Sunday you receive the sacraments you participate in the life of faith you have a spiritual life that all of those things are are very healing i mean that that's healing just think of the sacrament of penance to be able to be un, relieved of the burden of guilt and sin uh, through the grace of, I mean, that's something that some people would give everything for, and we have it if we truly believe it, uh, uh, that, so that we go uh, to receive absolution in the confessional. I think that the fact that people are uh, becoming isolated, that they're not, they don't have religious faith, they don't, I think that this, this also has a terrible emotional uh, as well as, as, and psychological as well as spiritual consequences for people. And, you know, even again, I often say that social sciences have shown over and over again that a family made up of a father and a mother uh, with children uh, leads to uh, emotional, mental, and material prosperity and success and, and, and far more than, than people who are, who are part of things that have fallen, fallen apart and who don't have those supports. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together this morning. Can you conclude our program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord Jesus, you have given us a gospel which is good news, calling us to truly abide by what you teach us, even with its radical demands, things that, left to ourselves, we cannot hope to achieve, but by your grace and blessing, enable us to truly become the saints that you call us to be. We pray that we may never shirk the responsibilities of the gospel in our life, that we may never run from the radical demands that you make of us, but we will recognize in them the path that leads to happiness in this world and the world to come. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We're looking forward to being with you again next week at the same time. Until then, enjoy this week. Thank you.